When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. South Shield sits on the port side of the River Tyne in England. Historically, the town was part of an Anglo-Saxon district called Wirralshire. Previously, South Shields was a fishing village. Its Anglo-Saxon name even refers to shells, which were temporary fishermen huts found on the banks of the river. In the 1970s, Alongside the port on River Drive, there were large petrol storage tanks that belonged to Velva Liquids Limited. Their purpose was to simply store large quantities of petrol for a prolonged period of time. The tanks were around 40 feet and could hold up to almost a million gallons of petrol. Up until the early 1970s, these tanks were used by ships. The vessels would dock alongside the tanks and discharge any petrol or chemicals. Frequent draining of the tanks and spillages led to extensive pollution within the river time. Velva Liquids had permission to discharge a wide range of waste into the water, including toxins. The constant change of contents within the tanks meant they needed to be cleaned every so often. 
it was certainly not a desirable task, and cleaners needed to work in the darkness among the sludge and muck that clung to the sides of the tanks. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 19 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. On Sunday, June 24th, 1979, Mick Mallonby and Eddie Dawson had the unfavourable task of cleaning tank number one. It had not been cleaned in almost a decade, so they knew it would be a strenuous job. The crude oil in the tank had already been emptied into the River Tyne, primed to be cleaned by the two men entrusted with the unpleasant but necessary task. The tanks at Velva Liquid were extremely dark. The only source of light appeared when a small hatch was opened, allowing some light from the outside to seep in. Mick and Eddie hoisted themselves inside and began cleaning among the black slime and petrol vapour. Their colleague Billy Knott stood outside, handing the two men the tools they needed. As they got to work... Billy's curiosity got the better of him, and he peered inside. It was difficult to see, but as his eyes became accustomed to the darkness, something caught his eye. It was a plastic bag floating in the remnants of the petrol. Billy hollered to Mick, telling him to look at what was inside the bag. Mick waded through the sludge and approached the out-of-place object. It was evident by the shape and the way it moved that there was something inside. As he lifted the plastic bag, the contents fell out. Like something from a nightmare, the large object that was now in the sludge appeared to be a human torso. The arms were still attached but it was missing its head and legs. Stunned by what they had discovered, Mick and Eddie scrambled to get out of the tank. The men immediately contacted the police, and Inspector Ian Duncan and his fellow officers were dispatched to the scene. Due to the toxic fumes inside the tank, the inspector was provided with breathing apparatus. He climbed inside and was directed to the body by Eddie Dawson. As Inspector Duncan searched further, he found something else. It was an object wrapped in a piece of canvas bound with a kind of rope called gland packing. Inspector Duncan carefully opened the parcel. It was a second macabre discovery and one that seemed to be linked to the first. It contained a severed head with long hair soaked in petrol. At this point, Inspector Duncan's breathing apparatus began to malfunction, so he was forced to leave the tank. The authorities decided that the human remains should temporarily be left where they were found, 
because of the possible risk of removing the toxic and inflammable material. At the time, there was no known precedent of a body being submerged in petrol for a prolonged period, nor had there been any research into the effects of handling a body under these conditions. It was an unusual situation, and one that required careful consideration for everyone's safety. The body needed to remain where it was discovered while investigators decided the best way to move forward without putting themselves at risk. What hampered the recovery of the remains further was the need for special lighting. There was an immense risk that one spark from a faulty light could result in an explosion. Five days later, the dismembered body was removed from the tank for a post-mortem. Due to the toxicity, it was decided the most sensible way to perform the examination would be in the open air. Dr. Harris Chandrarana Singer and his assistant wore protective clothing and breathing apparatus. As they began their examination, it was evident that the body had been inside the tank for some time but the petrol had preserved the remains well. Dr. Rana Singer determined the body was that of a young woman, aged between 16 and 20 years old. She was slim and had brownish hair with blue eyes. Despite the fact her legs were missing, the pathologist concluded she stood around 5 feet 3 inches tall. Her nails were well manicured, and she had pierced ears. Dr. Rana Singer found that the torso and head had been severed with an extremely sharp knife, a plain blade, instead of a serrated one. He estimated that it would have taken up to half an hour to sever the head from the body and then the torso from the legs. There was evidence that the killer had attempted to cut the torso vertically along the breastbone, but they had abandoned their attempt. It was concluded the dismemberment occurred at the Velva Liquids complex. The pathologist had found clinker embedded in the body, clinker that had come from the ground on site. The material is used in cement production. She had died from cuts and fractures to the skull that had most likely been caused by a hammer. However, despite his best efforts, Dr. Rana Singer could not establish a time of death. Typically, the state of decomposition can indicate how long somebody has been dead, but the dismembered body had been submerged in petrol, which had worked as something of a preservative. Since no oxygen could penetrate the petrol, natural decomposition could not occur. Investigators now had the daunting task of trying to figure out who the body belonged to. There were some features that could hopefully assist in identifying the victim. The pathologist had determined that the young woman had once suffered a broken collarbone and had undergone an operation to remove her appendix. There was also evidence of an old injury to her hand. As a further examination was carried out, 
investigators began checking missing person records nationwide. They also spoke with men who worked at Velva Liquids over the past decade. Officers presumed that the killer must have had knowledge of the layout of the company complex, as well as the large tanks. The body had been found inside tank number one and must have been dropped into the tank by the front hatch. The other hatches on the tanks were secured by dozens of bolts. To access the front hatch located on the top of the tank, the killer would have needed to climb the ladder on an adjacent tank, walk across the roof, then walk over a catwalk and on to tank number one. Investigators further speculated that the killer must have been aware that the tank was not scheduled to be cleaned for some time, hence picking this specific tank as opposed to one that was easier to access. During routine interviews, police officers spoke with 48-year-old Ernest Adolphus Clark, who had worked at Velva Liquids from 1966 to 1970. One officer later remarked that when Clark was told the police were there to speak about the torso and head found in the tank, Clark's legs began to tremble. He then said, You must be picking on me as I used to work at Velva Liquids. Clark denied any previous knowledge of the discovery, before telling investigators, If it was anyone working at Velva Liquids they would have burnt the body in the boiler or thrown it in the river. Back at the pathologist's office, Derek Jackson from the dental school at Newcastle University was asked to examine the teeth of the victim. This examination revealed that she had been brought up in an area with a certain level of fluoride content in the drinking water. This suggested she was from South Shields and the surrounding region, a discovery that allowed investigators to narrow down their search to those missing from that specific area. They then came across the missing person report of 17-year-old Eileen McDougall. Eileen McDougall was one of seven children brought up in a council house in South Shields. She had been missing for almost nine years. The last time she was seen was on January 17, 1970. In December 1969, Eileen had travelled to Maidstone in Kent, where she spent some time with her brother Billy and his wife Marie. By early January, Eileen was working at a brewery. She stayed out late most nights, but then suddenly she quit. Billy was worried about his sister. He did not know what she was getting up to late at night or who she was with while in Maidstone. Billy recommended that she return to South Shields, and she accepted his suggestion. In the middle of January, Billy accompanied Eileen back home on the train. She was carrying two plastic bags which contained spare clothing. Billy hugged his sister goodbye, unaware of where she was going. He simply assumed she would return home. Shortly thereafter, Eileen was spotted in a local pub, the Douglas Vaults. She had seemingly changed clothing, 
and gone with the two plastic bags she had been carrying. She was dressed for a night out on the town, clothing described as a see-through dress made of lace. Later that night, Eileen's sister Elizabeth saw her at the Latino nightclub in town. Afterwards, Eileen went to the home of her boyfriend Graham Atkins for a couple of hours, but she left at around 2am. She was still in the area the following day. Her mother Agnes recalled seeing her in Woolworths in the town centre. In the early hours of the next morning, Eileen knocked on Graham's front door. He lived in Edward Street in South Shields with his parents. Graham opened up the door to find Eileen soaking wet and dishevelled. She told him she had been kicked out, but Eileen did not elaborate on where she had been staying. Graham invited her in, and they slept in his bed. When Graham's father entered the bedroom at 7am, Eileen made a quick getaway. This was the last known sighting of Eileen. Her family did not think much of it when she never returned home. She was known to run away. Agnes had reported her daughter missing to the police on four separate occasions. However, it was easy to see why Eileen did not enjoy being at home. Her father was a domineering and violent man whose temper only increased when he was drinking. On occasion, he violently lashed out at his children. Because of the turbulent environment inside the family home, Eileen liked to stay away as often as possible. For a while, she found solace in school, but she struggled there as well. She was eventually expelled from Brinkburn Comprehensive when she was 14 years old. A psychiatrist at the school said that Eileen was an intelligent teenager, but she was rebellious because of the instability in her home life. In 1969, Eileen McDougall found herself in trouble with the law when she was caught stealing a handbag. She was placed on probation. The rebellious teenager began to break away from her family even further. It was common for Eileen to stay away for long periods at a time, so when she vanished for good in January 1970, they all speculated she would show up after a couple of days. But the days continued to pass, and Eileen never returned home. Her family reported her missing around five or six days later. As the police continued their investigation into the torso in the tank, Eileen McDougall was shortlisted. In order to confirm it was her, detectives obtained her medical records. They showed that Eileen had once suffered a broken collarbone and had previously been treated in hospital for an injury to her hand. Police also discovered that she had her appendix removed in 1969. It was looking more likely that the body in the tank was Eileen, but the police needed to be absolutely sure. They travelled to Brinkburn Comprehensive, where they recovered one of Eileen's old report cards. Miraculously, there was a fingerprint found on the school report, 
and when it was compared to the fingerprints of the dismembered body, it came back as a match. The torso in the tank belonged to Eileen McDougall. Police began to take a second look at the men who worked in Velva Liquids. This included Ernest Adolphus Clark, who lived on King's Bench Street in Hull. Clark had sailed to the Tyne on an American ship back in 1963, leaving behind a challenging life on St. Kitts in the West Indies, where he was forced to fend for himself from a young age. The ship was only due to stay for a short while before setting sail to America. During his time in the UK, Clark met Jenny Duncan from South Shields. He became besotted and abandoned his plans to move to America. Clark and Jenny were married and they settled down in a flat on Headley Street where they had twin boys and a little girl. Clark found employment at Velva Liquids as a terminal operator. Toward the end of the 1960s, Headley Street was demolished and the couple relocated to a council maisonette on Anderson Street. By all accounts, the marriage started off well, but slowly neighbours began to hear the couple frequently embroiled in blazing rows. They eventually called time on their relationship and when their divorce was finalised, Clark was granted sole custody of their three children. Clark stayed in South Shields for a while before moving to Hull, where he got a job at Tyne Dock Engineering. He found love again with Linda Scott, who he married in 1971. This marriage ended in 1975, and the couple were officially divorced a year later. Police looked into whether Ernest Clark knew Eileen McDougall. When they spoke with him again, Clark confirmed this to be the case. From June 1960 until December 1969, Eileen's sister Elizabeth worked as a babysitter for Clark and his first wife. At the time, Elizabeth was living in a flat with her two friends Mary Bell and Anne Sutherland. The three girls were sometimes entrusted to babysit Clark's three children. When they were at Clark's home, Eileen often popped over to help out. Elizabeth told the police that Clark had never been inappropriate with any of them. As the circumstantial case against Clark was building, detectives spoke with several of his colleagues at Velva Liquids. Ronald Embleton, who had worked at the company for 14 years, told the police that around two weeks before Clark lost his job in January 1970, he saw him closing a valve in tank number four. This tank contained liquid which could set into a wax-like substance. The channel underneath tank number four became flooded with the substance, it reached the top of a small wall just underneath the valve. He then saw Clark sometime later, bricking up two small openings in the wall underneath the valve. Ronald asked Clark what he was doing, and Clark allegedly replied, Nothing, man. 
McDonald suggested that Clark had released the liquid from tank number four and bricked up the channel, possibly as a way to conceal evidence. Ronald Embleton then recollected another peculiar incident. He said that just before Clark was fired, he had been digging a trench where he was burying rubbish. When Ronald returned to the trench the next day, he found that Clark had filled it in. Police again visited the Velva Liquids complex to continue their search around the tanks, and it was then they found some kind of blue material that had been buried. They theorised that it was Eileen McDougall's jumper. Their suspicion was further compounded when they spoke with Elizabeth, who said that the material was similar to the kind of jumper that her sister used to wear. Ernest Clark had been working at Velva Liquids until the end of January 1970, when he was fired from his job after he questioned the promotion of Ronald Embleton. Clark wrote a letter to his manager Douglas Moon, suggesting that another worker should have been given the promotion over Ronald. His manager saw this as insubordination and terminated Clark's employment. Ernest Clark was arrested in Hull on July 13, 1979 and was brought to South Shields Police Station. He was kept there for three days without being allowed to speak with a solicitor. He agreed to voluntarily give blood and hair samples. Police were working on building a circumstantial case against him. They believed that when Eileen McDougall returned to South Shields in January 1970, she had changed her clothing at Clark's home. After being spotted at the Latino nightclub, officers theorised she had planned to stay with Clark that night. However, there had been some kind of altercation, and Clark kicked Eileen out. Then when she left her boyfriend's home in the morning, it was speculated that she had gone back to Clark's home, where he killed her and disposed of her body during his shift at Velva Liquids. That said, their theory did not entirely fit with the known timeline. According to Velva Liquid duty logs, Clark had started his shift that morning at 7am, the same time Eileen bolted from her boyfriend's home. His shift ended at 2pm, after which time Ronald Embleton took over. Despite the inconsistencies in the circumstantial case, Clark was charged with the murder of Eileen McDougall. He appeared in court, where the prosecutor argued against bail. Solicitor William Duffy requested his client be released while awaiting trial. Mr. William Edgar, chairman of the bench, agreed with the prosecution and refused bail. He said to Clark, Having regard to the very serious nature of the offence and the possibility you might fail to surrender to custody, we are going to remand you in custody for one week. As the media began to report on Clark's arrest, William Duffy came to his client's defence, stating, 
At no time had he ever been alone with the deceased and had acted properly towards her. Duffy said that a lot of people in the area worked at Velva Liquids, and a lot of people also knew Eileen. This did not mean that they had killed her. The Defence Counsel also accused Ronald Embleton of lying to implicate his former co-worker. According to his counsel, Ernest Clark was anxious to clear his name and was ready to stand trial to prove his innocence. William Duffy was not the only one to come to Clark's defence. His arrest had come as a massive surprise to those that knew him. Clark only had one minor run-in with the law when he was charged with stealing a bank book from the post office. He was fined £50. By all accounts, Clark was a hard-working and friendly man. Davy Orr, who lived near Clark, said that everybody in the neighbourhood got on well with him, saying he was a nice man who lived for his children and thought the world of them. He used to let all the kids in the street into his garage to play. Harry Dinning, who worked as a security guard at Velva Liquids, commented that Clark was always a hard worker and took pride in his appearance. Furthermore, Dorothy Mintoff, Clark's next-door neighbour, said, He was always very pleasant, and he certainly never caused any trouble around here. Another bail hearing was scheduled for November of that year. Ernest Clark was released by the judge. As part of his bail conditions, Clark needed to remain living at his home in Hull. He needed to surrender his passport and provide two £3,000 sureties. A man and a woman that knew Clark provided a guarantee of £3,000 each, but the week after Clark was released, he was re-arrested when the couple changed their minds. The pair had been running a shop, but it had since gone out of business, leaving them in a difficult financial situation. Solicitor William Duffy then suggested an alternative surety, Clark's home. He had recently sold the property, and Duffy said the proceeds would be frozen into the hands of the solicitors for the period of the bail. The magistrates agreed, and Ernest Clark was granted bail once more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code among us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. The murder trial began on June 4th, 1980. During opening statements, prosecutor Brian Walsh QC told the jury that he was going to present them a jigsaw of facts, but in the end they would be able to see the entire picture. In addition to the evidence collected, the prosecution had learned from Alan Dalgleish that Clark had supposedly made a confession to him. Clark and Dalgleish had been held on remand at the same time in Durham Jail. According to Dalgleish, Clark had said to him, I did it, but they'll never prove it after ten years. The defence were not made aware of this so-called confession until the first day of the trial, but they were quick in their rebuttal. They learned that Alan Dalgleish had an extensive history of mental health problems and was an unreliable witness. The court was told that Dalgleish had a predilection for making things up and his evidence was duly discounted. Eileen McDougall's sister Elizabeth was called to the witness stand. She described how she had worked as a babysitter for Ernest Clark and how Eileen often came around when she was looking after the children. Defence counsel Humphrey Potts QC asked if she ever had sexual relations with the defendant. Elizabeth responded, Certainly not. The man was old enough to be my father. Eileen's sister explained that Clark was never inappropriate with them, 
However, Elizabeth's friend Mary remembered things very differently. She told the jury that she believed Clark had a crush on Elizabeth and had once said to her, I would like to touch her legs for a fiver. Mary testified, She'd never have dreamed of doing that. Liz was a bit of a prude. She wasn't that sort of person. Ernest Clark would testify on his own behalf during the murder trial. He took to the witness stand and professed, I did not kill anyone. The defendant spoke about Ronald Embleton's accusations and denied he had released any liquid or bricked up a channel. The defendant then went on to speak about Eileen's sister, Elizabeth. While Elizabeth had denied there had been any sort of sexual relationship with Clark, surprisingly, the defendant would confess to the courtroom that he had become involved with Elizabeth and another teenager from the summer of 1969 until Christmas. The prosecutor showed Clark a photograph of Eileen and Elizabeth and pointed out that they looked similar. The defendant agreed that he had found Elizabeth pretty, and when asked if he could say the same of Eileen, he replied, There is no reason to say no. Clark was then asked whether the person who killed Eileen McDougall would have familiarity with the Velva Liquids complex. He replied, it is a possibility. The prosecutor went on to suggest that perhaps Eileen McDougall was a tease. He asked Clark whether she was. The defendant replied, I didn't know much about Eileen, and I didn't try to find out. Ernest Clark was then asked whether a girl who behaved like a tease would make a man like him angry. He responded, she did not behave like that in my presence. Prosecutor Brian Walsh QC then said to Clark, You fancied Eileen, and you thought you would try to have sexual intercourse with her. Is that right? Clark denied that it was telling the prosecutor. That would be your opinion, but not mine because I didn't have reason to try and have intercourse with her. The prosecutor suggested that Clark became angry when she refused to have sex and hit her. It was suggested that when Clark was allegedly observed emptying liquid from the tank, he was doing so to hide incriminating evidence. It was also argued that part of Eileen's clothing had been found concealed at Velva Liquids. However, Clark rebutted this, stating that the items found were nothing more than just rags. Mark said that the men at Velva Liquids frequently used rags to wipe their hands, and they often threw them away afterwards. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Brian Walsh QC told the jury that when the defendant was arrested, he remarked, I understand that all the facts point to Ernest Clark, and they do. Walsh once again said that the evidence collected was like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that gradually fitted together until there was a complete picture. 
He described the murder of Eileen McDougall as horrendous, telling the jury, She was battered over the head with some heavy object used with force, of the same striking as a hammer. Her body was dismembered, and the torso had been placed in the tank. Walsh stated to the jury that the evidence suggested the killer was somebody extremely familiar with Velva liquids, just like the defendant. Defence counsel Humphrey Potts QC asked the jury to cast away any prejudice they may have against his client, arguing, You are trying a man from another part of the world. A black man who, on his oath, has told you he had sexual relations with a witness in the trial when she was 17. Some of you might just start your consideration of the evidence in this case with a sense of prejudice against him because he is black, because out of his own mouth he has admitted what in your mind might be immorality. The defence counsel asked that the jury properly assess the facts of the case and not speculate. He said, At the end of the day, When all of the evidence has been analysed, you have got the fact that the accused worked at Velva Liquids and knew the girl, and nothing more. Before the jury was sent away to deliberate, Mr Justice Caulfield described the murder of Eileen McDougall as a filthy, shocking and callous crime. Furthermore, the judge praised the officers working the inquiry, stating, The amount of work done by police in this case was enormous. They worked under great difficulties. Not only the police, but also the forensic scientists and doctors are to be commended. Mr Justice Caulfield added, Many people in South Shields knew Eileen, and some men certainly too on the evidence knew her sexually, to put it in not too rough a way. There is nothing, you may think, absolutely nothing indicative of guilt in being an acquaintance of Eileen. If it be the fact that Clark is the only person at Velva who knew Eileen, that may well be your view. The case against Ernest Clark was entirely circumstantial but the jury returned with a unanimous verdict. He was found guilty of the murder of Eileen McDougall. The conviction came with an automatic life sentence. The following year, Ernest Clark appealed the verdict. He argued that the trial judge should never have allowed the case to go before a jury. He also alternatively argued that if the case was properly left to the jury, then the appeal court should hold that the verdict of guilty was unsafe and unsatisfactory. Lord Justice Dunn agreed that the evidence against Clark was entirely circumstantial and the prosecution had relied on evidence that he was the only man who worked at Velva Liquids who knew Eileen. 
However, Lord Justice Dunn reiterated how Clark was a skilled employee and had access to the tank in question. Addressing the jury's decision, the conclusion of the initial appeal read, This court feels no lurking doubt about that verdict. It was essentially a matter for them, and it is not our duty to monitor their decision. In 1983, the controversial murder case was looked at by the BBC programme Rough Justice. They called into question some of the evidence in the case and the eyewitness testimony of Ronald Embleton. He had since admitted that his recollection of the dates may not have been precise. This led to solicitor David Clark asking for the case to be reopened. Clark stated, I have looked at all the aspects of Ernest Clark's case, and what I saw disturbed me greatly. I found that so much of the evidence now appears to be circumstantial, and that the new evidence drawn out by the BBC's Rough Justice programme cast new light on it. The Home Office agreed to a review. Ernest Clark had a plethora of supporters behind him, he felt that he was a victim of a wrongful conviction. Furthermore, there was evidence that Eileen could have visited a different flat in the town centre around the time of her disappearance. Close to the home of Ernest Clark, the property was described as both a commune and an open house, where young people went to parties and drugs were prevalent. Partygoers often stayed the night, sleeping anywhere they could lay their heads. Visitors to this flat would later account how it was not a safe environment, as several assaults had occurred. Eileen had been seen there on numerous occasions. In August 1985, the Court of Appeal announced they were going to rehear the case. During the appeal... Prosecutor Brian Walsh QC accepted that the blue material found near the tank that they claimed was Eileen's jumper was simply just rags. Clark's defence counsel also argued that during the trial, the testimony regarding the material was the most damning piece of evidence against his client. The prosecution had contended it was Eileen's jumper, and Ronald Embleton had supposedly seen Clark attempting to hide it. Now that this evidence was dismissed, Defence Counsel Humphrey Potts QC requested that the Court of Appeal rule Clark's conviction unsafe and unsatisfactory. But Prosecutor Brian Walsh QC fought back and argued that the conviction was fair. He contended that Eileen was, quote, known to be a tease, and this sexual element was the strong motivation behind the murder. The outcome of the appeal rested on whether the absence of evidence would render the conviction unsafe. Ultimately, the Court of Appeal concluded that the new finding regarding the material recovered from Velva Liquids was irrelevant and that the jury likely paid little attention to the testimony of witness Ronald Embleton. 
The judges said that it was inconceivable that anybody other than Clark was responsible for Eileen McDougall's murder. Ernest Clark's appeal was denied. As the decision was announced, two female relatives of Clark's fled from the courtroom in floods of tears. Outside, one of them said, I've got nothing to say. I don't want to comment. I just want to get home to Hull. So where are we now? Following his failed appeal, Ernest Clark returned to Franklin Prison in Durham to continue serving his life sentence. In August 1986, he was allowed temporary leave to marry Mary Sands at Durham Registry Office. Clark and Mary had met in the 1960s when their children played together in South Shields. They lost contact when he moved to Hull, but she reached out to him following his arrest for Eileen McDougall's murder. May wholeheartedly believed in Ernest Clark's innocence. She said to the Evening Chronicle, When I heard he'd been arrested, I was devastated. Having known him through the children playing together and known the type of man he was, I knew he couldn't have done it. In June 1994, Clark's parole procedure began. He had served 14 years in prison and had since been moved to Lindholm Prison near Doncaster. In the preceding years, he had been allowed unescorted visits back home to South Tyneside to see his wife, May. The parole board were impressed by Clark's behaviour in prison as well as his relationships with his family and his parole officer. The parole board were also considering Clark's health. He was the oldest inmate in Lindholm, and he was suffering from chronic angina and respiratory problems as well. But despite his old age, Clark had insisted on working in the prison garden and had found himself something of a grandfather figure to other inmates. The board ultimately granted his release, and set a provisional date for early December. At 7.30am on December 4th, 1994, Ernest Adolphus Clark left prison, a free man. He was 63 years old, and had spent almost a decade and a half behind bars. His family were all waiting for him outside the prison gates. They made no comments to the media and drove off to May's home in Wall's End. Following his release, Ernest Clark faded into obscurity, presumably living out the remainder of his life with his third wife and children. In spite of his murder conviction and failed appeal, many believe Clark was innocent and the person responsible for the murder of Eileen McDougall has never been brought to justice. Hold up. 
Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.